Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of this Farm Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Rabbi Netanel Wiederblank, who is uh, Magachir Yeshiva University, where he teaches college and smicha students Talmud, Halacha, and Jewish philosophy. And he is the author of a projected three-volume series. Right now, it's been two volumes. Uh, volume two was published first. And they're both called, sorry, it's all called Illuminating Jewish Thought. The first volume, which was the second volume, which was published, it published is Explorations of Free Will, the Afterlife, and the Messianic Era. And the new volume, which is volume one that was just published, is Faith, Philosophy, and Knowledge of God. So thank you very much, Rabbi Rita Blank, for joining me. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. So why don't we start off, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. So I'm from Silver Spring, Maryland, and I grew up going to local schools, the Hebrew Academy, and then Yeshiva of Greater Washington. In the Yeshiva of Greater Washington, I perhaps got my first exposure to Machshava with Ravan Lapiansky, who's the Rosh Yeshiva there. I was never there for base medrash. I was there for high school. After high school, I went to uh, Eretz Yisrael. I learned in Karen Biavna and Chavron and a little bit in the mirror. And ever since I've been in YU, I uh, went to YU kicking and screaming. My parents settled in YU. They were hoping I'd go to a real college. YU is a real college, by the way. But, uh, but they, they were happy with YU and they've come to be very happy with YU. And, and I love YU. So I was there first. I, I learned and I was in college and for smicha, went to graduate school there as well, Kololyon, and then Baruch Hashem, after uh, I was finished with school, I was very fortunate that they offered the, me the opportunity to teach. So and now I teach, I teach, I give a regular Gemara Shir. This year we're learning Psachim and I give Shir to Smicha guys in Halacha, mostly. Last year we learned Hilchah Shabbos, before that uh, Yoridea, before that Hilchah Nida. This year we're learning Brachos. And I also, on Fridays primarily, I give a Machshava Shir to Smicha guys. And the Machshava Shir more or less is where these Svarim, the, the ideas in these Svarim came from. So these are these are projected three volumes. I don't get, I can't do this in one year, but the, they more or less come from the Friday shiurim that I've been giving. Right. Okay. So I think we should dive right in. So these are obviously um, a bit of heavier topics, more a lot, you know. So the, so those kind of so so how is, you know, how and how and when did you get into these topics essentially? It's a good question, and I'm not sure of the answer. I think I was always interested in them somewhat. I'm a, I'm a curious person, and. I enjoy learning and learning about new things. And so the types of questions that I deal with here are issues that always somewhat interested me. I was never, it was never my focus in learning. In yeshiva, I always learned uh, three sadarma day, gemara like everybody else. It's not like I took off afternoon seder to read Marnevuchim or something. And, and the truth is, even nowadays, um, I spend most of my day teaching and learning standard stuff. So how did I get into it? So it's a funny thing. Almost by accident, I think, when I was in smicha and also after smicha learning in kolal, so my wife's also a teacher, so we had summers off. And there's a division of communal service in YU. 
now it's uh, called the CJF. And we went there and I asked, are there any communities that uh, are interested in someone coming to give shiurim? And the first year we were married, they sent us to Las Vegas, which is very interesting. And then afterwards we went to Edmonton. We actually went to Edmonton for five summers in a row, Edmonton, Alberta. Edmonton, Alberta, if you don't know where it is, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's like 200 miles north of Calgary. It's a really beautiful place and a wonderful community. And so I went to this show, a lovely show, and I asked what type of topics are you interested in? What, what could I give a sheer in? So the first thing is they were really into learning. It was incredible. People used to come every night to Shurim. The first year we came for two weeks. Then the next years we came for five weeks, six weeks, and people would come out night after night to Shurim. But what type of topics are we going to talk about? So most of the shul there, it's an Orthodox shul, most of it is in Shomer Shabbos. So I'm not going to give a shir in halacha. Certainly not too many people would be interested in a complex Gemara shir, but they asked me, well, we'd love to hear shir about the afterlife. We'd love to hear shir about free will, about what we have to believe. Do we need to believe, trust in God? All these types of questions. So in trying to give them those shurim, I had to learn the topic. I had to learn this again, no choice. So. You know, they said, okay, share in the afterlife. Well, I've got to figure out what, what, what the afterlife is all about. So I started to learn these topics. And as I was learning them, I really enjoyed them. And, and that's how I started giving shiurim like this. And when I started teaching in YU, so at the beginning, before I gave a regular Gemara shir, I taught in programs called IBC and JSS. And these programs are the learning programs in YU that aren't as much Gemara focused. And though I, I sometimes talk Gemara and Halacha in those programs, I found it much easier to teach them these types of topics. Because when you have someone that's not so into Gemara, so you have to do somersaults to get them excited about Gemara. These topics, they're so interesting for most people. They're provocative, they're interesting, they're exciting. So that's how I started teaching them. So it was really only later that I started giving shurim in these topics to, to Machshava. Rabbi Rapp, my friend, sometimes said that, you know, sometimes you have lil mode almanas lamed, and sometimes you have melamed almanas lil mode. In other words, you gotta learn it because you're gonna give a share on the topic. So in a, in, a, in a sense, that's how I got into it. And, and I feel very, very fortunate, the hashkacha that, that brought me to here and, and, and helped me focus on these topics. And, and, and I, I, Baruch Hashem, I love it. So at that time, had you read any, I mean, I, I don't know if it was clear, like any of those classics, the Maranavuchim, the Kuzari, Munis Vidas, all the classical Svarim, or you had to not go read them? Systematically. I think I, I learned Ramban al Torah, and occasionally I, I opened up a, a Maranavuchim. I remember when I was in Karen so this is my first year out of high school, I asked Rav Blachman, is, is it a good idea to learn Maranavuchim? So Rav Blachman said, let's see. And we sat down, we opened up in Ma'anavuchim to the Hakdama. And in that, he talks about, well, who, who should be learning Ma'anavuchim? It's very similar to what he says in Hilchos Yisodia Torah, that you have to fulfill your belly with meat and wine or, or meat and bread. He says it differently, actually, in, in both places. 
And he says, no, what does that mean? You have to, do you know Shas and Poskim? So I said, no. So he said, well, then the Rambam says you shouldn't be reading this book. So that was it. So, um, so I didn't read Mornavuchim then. Again, things like this interested me. When I was in Eretz all those years, I used to go to the shiurim occasionally, the Thursday night shiurim of Moshe Shapiro, which are really, I found them so interesting. And, and again, I've heard Machshava shiurim from, at that point, from Ravaran, from Rav Moshe Shapiro, from my Rebbeim Karbiyavna, Rav Lachman and Rastav. So I certainly enjoyed learning about these things, but, but it wasn't something that I, I really worked on. And it wasn't until much later where I tried to consistently learn these types of svarim, like, like the Maranavuchim or Kuzari or the like. Now, now, so your hashkafa on these issues comes from all the ones you just mentioned, or are there, are there somewhere else as well? Um, hopefully they come from my rebellion. So certainly the people I mentioned in NYU, I think especially Rav Meir Tursky, who's, uh, I was in a shir, the regular Gemara shir, but he would also often talk about the machshava topics. But uh, hopefully they came from my rebellion and, and this farm themselves, meaning to say that these farm present the Hashkafa Satora. And I hope that my Hashkafos comes from, from the Torah. I'm not uh, imposing my own views on them. Right, right. Um, so we'll get to, you know, everyone listening is like, well, we're going to get to the actual Sfarim and what they contain, and we'll discuss, we'll discuss that in depth, Mr. Shem. But, you know, at this point, why, why, why did, I mean, essentially the why, I mean, we've alluded to this, but why did you feel the need to write and teach about these topics? And what is your intended goal at this time, especially with the book series, more so than what well, you're teaching your limited class, you know, Sheer, but here you're actually writing a book, a whole series. So, so first of all, I, I write in the introduction, and, and I'm not just saying this because I'm modest, I'm, I'm not particularly modest. I, I don't think I, I'm equipped to, to write these books. First of all, I, I spend most of my time, as I told you, then and now learning Gemara, learning Halacha. I uh, frequently get emails and calls from people who've read the book and have questions. And when I start talking about them, talking to them about these matters, I find out that they know a lot more about these topics than I do. They're, you know, why didn't you include that Ramban in the Sefer Gula? It's so, so, yeah, you're right. It's, I must have overlooked it. So I sometimes have Talmudim who, who, who know more than me about these topics. Right now, one of the Talmudim in the Shir is looking over some chapters uh, that are going to hopefully come out in, in volume three. And, and he he keeps on saying, well, you know, what you said over here, what about that chapter in Marnevuchim? Isn't that a contradiction? It's like, well, that's a good point. So, so, so if that's true, so, so why did I write this book? And the answer is because nobody else did. I, I would have loved a sefer like this when I first got into the sugya, when I had to prepare a shir on Yudia and Bechira and the afterlife and the like, I would have loved a sefer that did what, what hopefully these farm do. So I didn't find one and, and therefore I decided to write it myself. Now, I'd actually like to clarify something. First of all, it's true that I would have loved to have my own book, but I think also I'm very fortunate that I didn't. Let me give you a mushal. Let's say um, I have to give a Gemara shir. So I could be lazy and I could read a raid Sefer or look at the Masivta or something like that and give the shear. And the information that I give them the shear might, might be correct. And the audience, depending on their level, might even be very impressed. 
look at all those Rishonim and Achronim that I'm quoting, but it would be a lousy shear. And it's not because I want to say chidushim, I want to say my own shteklach. I don't feel the need to do that, but it's because in Torah, to, to get to the heart of the matter, you need Amaliyagiyah, you need to work on it. You need to read the texts and struggle with them and have a Havamina and have a Kasha and have a Maskana. And also for, for these texts to be transformative, for Torah to change me, it's not just about information. So Amel and Yagia is a big part of that. It's about the process. So, so actually, I guess I'm happy I didn't have my own Sefer. Um, then you could tell me, well, then I'm being martial everybody else by writing it. I don't think that's true either. If that were correct, maybe we should throw out all this Sparma, the Achronim and the Rashi Yeshiva. And we should just say, yeah, everybody go learn and Rishonim on your own. No more footnotes. So I think even, even Raid Sparm have a Toelas, whether it's for seeing Marmakomos or for someone who lacks the ability or the time or the inclination to start from the beginning. You can't always start from the beginning. But there's also a more important reason. And that, that's why, and that, that actually brings me to the structure of the Sefer, which is, that's why I put the words of the Rishonim, the Gemaras, the Achronim, Chazal, in the Sefer, in their original Hebrew. Because I don't want it to be a raid Sefer. I want people to learn a Makoros. I would much rather, you know, you could skip the actual texts and only read my commentary as it were, but, but that's not what I'm interested in. What I'd really like the way I want people to learn the Sefer, to use the Sefer, is to actually read them and, and, and decide on your own. Maybe you'll read them and you'll decide, I got it all wrong. That's great. That's why I included the text. Nobody could, could accuse me of, of covering over things. Sometimes, you know, when you read a, a Sefer, quote somebody else, you say, that's interesting. And then if you actually bother looking it up, you say, well, he didn't say that. That's not what it says. So it can't always include the entire chapter of everything, but to the extent that I'm able to, I put the Makoros in Hebrew and in English. And actually somebody just asked me, why is it that sometimes when I'm quoting the Rambam and the Marnavuchim, I have the Hebrew and English, and sometimes just the English. So in theory, the reason is because whenever you're dealing with the work in translation, like the Marnavuchim, so, there's always the question of interpretation. There's no such thing as a pure translation. I don't speak Arabic, so Judeo-Arabic, so I, I, I did not read the Rambam in the original. And therefore, when I have a question about the interpretation, the best thing to do is to use multiple translations. And so I tried to do the same thing. So where I thought that two translations might have slightly different connotations or implications. I included both. Sometimes where the Hebrew and English that I was using were basically the same. So then I, um, I would just do the English because you don't need to bother with the Hebrew, it's also translation. But anyway, the point that I'm, I'm trying to get at is that the way I, I'd like the readers to use the Sefer is to read the originals and think, learn them. Maybe I got it all wrong. Right. Now, just just quickly, uh, all the English translations in here are translations that you did or you took them from existing translations? Oh, yesh v'yesh. And the truth is that a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm lazy. Um, so 
the when there was a easy translation that's when somebody else did a translation in, in theory if there were any good translations i should have used other people's translations and that would be it um and i always did that when there were translations online that i could copy and paste see with the hebrew text so it's there were some things that i couldn't find online so those i actually had to type but but otherwise most of the texts it's very easy. I would just copy and paste them from the responsa program or whatever other sources I had. With English, that's not as common. But if I had a translation that was a decent translation that was already online, so I would just use that. If not, so then it depends. Some things didn't have translation, so I would do it myself. Sometimes they did, but I was too lazy to go to the library and get it and find it and type it and copy it. So I also did it myself. So they're, um, they're inconsistent. And the truth is even in the Rambam's Mar Nevuchim, um, I'm not even consistent. I try to note it though. I, I don't know if I was perfect. The, originally when I started working on it, I used the older translation that's online, that's free. And, and that's where a lot of them were from. And then as I went through the, the Sefer, I, I started switching to using the, the English uh, penis translation from the University of Chicago, which is a better translation um, and, and using that. But, but as I said, I was lazy. So if I use that one, I'd have to type it. And if I use the, the one online, I would just be able to copy and paste. So, so I'm not, uh, I'm not I, I wasn't consistent in A, which translations I always used and B, even in which translations I was going to use. So uh, that's certainly a, a flaw in the Sefer. Um, there are a lot of flaws. And, and part of it does have to do with the fact that I don't have time to even aim for, for perfection or anything close to perfection. And, and in many things in this, in this book, I, I think that it's a valuable resource and my attitude was, if I'm going to aim for perfection, then it's never going to get finished. And I have to just do a good enough job. And, and I, hope, I hope it's good enough. Every time I, I look at it again, I always will find ways that, oh, I could say that one, that a little better. This is unclear. And, and I could have, I, maybe I could have taken a year off and you know, worked on it and it would have been a much better book. But I don't, I think the other things I do are valuable so it's not worthwhile. I also couldn't afford to uh, do that anyway. I, I don't have a position where I'm given a sabbatical to take a year off and, and write. So, uh, so that being the case, my, my goal was, I don't know if I should be admitting this, but my goal was uh, good enough and Hopefully, uh, hopefully, good enough is valuable, even even if it could be better. Right, and I think all the flaws aside that you're mentioning are are really minor compared to what a tremendous resource it is. And as you mentioned, really nothing like this existed. And also, as you mentioned, it's got a mix of Hebrew and the English. It's all nice blend with footnotes, and we'll get more into that. So, also another thing is so. Who who is the intended audience of this? Who who are you intending for? to read it and to, to gain from it? Just anyone? Yes, it's a good question. Um, I think anyone who is thoughtful 
is the intended audience. I write it in such a way that it could be understood with someone with not a lot of background. I hope everything is in translation and the like. And, and I hope then that someone who is both has a stronger background and is knowledgeable, but looking to, to see more, or someone who's a beginner, but is whirling to work. It's, it's not light reading, like you said, but I think, I think really a, a broad range of people could benefit from it. And, and I've been very fortunate to, to see that all sorts of people have uh, been reading it. I, I don't think that there's one particular target audience. You know, one thing that people ask me is whether the book is academic. So people are a little confused about this because they say, well, it's covered by Koran, it's published by Koran and uh, it has big words. And I sometimes quote academic sources, uh, but it's, if you read it, it's not necessarily academic in tone in the sense that I have reverence for the sources in a way that academic books frequently lack. And more importantly, I think my attitude is that the Torah is true and let's learn Torah. And through that, we could arrive at the MS. As opposed to the more academic approach, which is, and again, I don't have anything against academic Torah. And, and I, have, I think that, that academics have contributed a great deal to Torah. And there are academics with your Shemayim, and I have benefited from them, and I quote them. I'm not, uh, I, I don't, I'm not super well read in these topics, in, in the academic texts, but, but I certainly have benefited from them. And I think that there's a lot that one can learn from academic Jewish studies. But I think that their attitude is a little bit different. Their attitude is much more about let's analyze a text. Here's what it says. Here's the historical context. We can try to think about why he said what he said, how is what he said different than what others were saying. But it's not an attitude of let's try to figure out what Ratzon Hashem is. Let's try to figure out what the Torah is teaching us, what we're supposed to do in life. That's very different. It's not about figuring out the MS per se, it's about understanding a particular text. And that's why it could be anything. You don't have to believe in it. Some people do believe in it, some people don't believe in it, but that's irrelevant. So it's different, I think, than academic texts, but it's also very different than a typical English machshava sefer. I think generally speaking, their goal is to be inspirational, which is great. Inspiration is very important. They, they serve a very valuable purpose, but they usually lack analysis. They oversimplify things. I'll give you an example. Right now I'm working on the Sugya of Providence for volume three, and that's a really tough topic. There are all sorts of contradictions in the Rambam, in the Ramban. Ibn Tibbun, who is Rambam's translator, writes the Rambam himself about contradictions he discovered in the Rambam's perspective on divine providence. 
In fact, he actually concludes that the Rambam's view is in line with Aristotle's view, which is the opposite of what the Rambam actually says, but that's a different issue. There's Stiros and Ramban. Did he believe in Teva? Didn't he believe in Teva? These are tough issues. And when you look at, generally speaking, the English type books on this topic, they're very, and I'm sure this isn't true about all of them, and I haven't even read so many of them, but I think generally what I've seen, they're very inspirational. Everything is hashkacha. We have to see all the goodness and everything that Hashem does and acknowledge the hashkacha. And, and that's great. I have nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with that type of, of book, but, but that's not what I'm trying to do. English books, again, the more yeshivisha books, um, the inspirational books, they often try to avoid controversial issues. And I, I don't think that that's not my goal. I'll give you an example from the volume one that just came out. So what, what is the view of the Rambam and Ramban on arguing with Chazal, especially in Mili Dergadita? So again, you'll find this, I imagine, in academic type books. You won't find this in any of the, as far as I know, the English Svarim. But it's an important question. The Rambam, on the one hand, tells you that you have to respect what Chazal say and appreciate that they're telling you something very deep, even if you don't understand it. And then one of the things I talk about here in volume one is that there are a number of places, at least four, where the Rambam quotes the view of Chazal, where there's no debate. And he says, yeah, but that's a minority view. And he tells you his own position on that. So what's he trying to do? Does he think you could argue with Chazal? Does he think you can't? Is he trying to trick you and pretend that there's a majority view that he doesn't, that, that we haven't discovered? In Ramban, what, what does the Ramban say about that? The Ramban, his famous comments in the debate where he seems to be somewhat dismissive of certain types of midrashim, sermons, what he refers to as, but, but, but even in his Parashal Torah, there are times where he, he quotes Chazal and he says, it's Eno Nachon. So what's he trying to do? These are some very important questions. And we have to, my goal is to analyze them with respect, but without glossing over the issues and, and, and without ignoring these types of more controversial issues. I think just because you mentioned it right right now, we should just touch on one thing before we get back to some other things. Is that so? On all these issues, do you try to come out with a maskana, you know, a conclusion and say this is the way, or or is it type of thing where you say, okay, the Ramban holds this, the Raman holds this, this one holds this, and you know, have at it. I'm just bringing the discussion to the table, and you should know there's different sheets. Probably more the latter, meaning to say, I try to present the views of the major Jewish thinkers on a particular topic. So certainly, like you said, the Rambam, the Ramban, on matters of Hashkafa, let's say the view of the Kuzari and the like, when a view is not the mainstream view, so I'll say that. So when we do this sugya in volume two about free will, so we talk about whether there are Rishonim who deny divine foreknowledge or there are Rishonim that deny free will. And 
again, hopefully I'm analyzing their views correctly. And I write over there that these aren't the mainstream views because I don't, just because a Rishon said something doesn't mean it's a mainstream view. But at the same time, I think if a Rishon said something, it is valuable to know what they said, even if it's not the, the mainstream view. So when it comes to things like that, I, I try to note, give you another example. Recently, I was working on for the next, for volume three, talking about Bechiras Yisrael, the chosenness of the Jewish people. And of course, there's a lot in Kuzari on that, and we spend a lot of time on Kuzari. So one of the topics that comes up is Kuzari's view on Geirim, that Geirim are, in a certain sense, inferior. They're fully Jewish, but they lack the Inyan Eloki, and therefore, they're not shayach to nevuah and the like. What he actually holds is, is a bit complex. Spend some time on it. But the point is that I think it's important to know that's what the Kuzari says. It's not my job to whitewash. But I also write that many thinkers strongly reject this view and they maintain that the main, that, that uh, Geirim are equal to people born Jewish in every respect. So that's the way I see my, my job. I do try to present, you can never present every opinion on every topic. Uh, these, these books are longer than they should be as it is. And if we were trying to, to try to truly be comprehensive, they would be even longer. And I'm not always systematic in terms of the views that I present. The views I choose are hopefully the mainstream, the most important views. They're the ones that I know of, I don't know everything. And they're the ones also, I think, that I find most interesting. And, and so if I found a particularly, particular view interesting, so I'm gonna quote it and talk about it and the like. So it's not my, my job, I don't think, to, to, to judge or to say who's right or who's wrong. Rather, I think they're Torah and we present Torah that way. Just like if you were giving a shear in Gemara. You know, the way I present, I, I said, I, the way I present these topics in a certain sense is learning the sugya and presenting the sugya, much like you would in a Gemara shear. So you start with the Gemara, you talk about the Rishonim, you ask the Kashas, you talk about the Achronim. Nobody ever finishes a Gemara shear by saying, well, the Ramban is right, the Rambam is wrong, and Tosfos, they got certain things correct. And they're, they're, that's not the... But at the same time, um, certainly, let's say, when, when you give a halacha shir, you're, you're going to say, there you're going to say halacha lemaisa. Usually these topics don't have a halacha lemaisa. But, but I do think it's valuable when there is a viewpoint that has become predominant or more accepted to, to make the reader aware of that. So I try to do that as well. So... Uh, something you kind of alluded to is that who, who exactly are the sources in here? And I'll clarify what I mean. In, in general, I'm not, not, you're not going to give a whole laundry list of sources here, but in general, is it something that, I mean, mention some of the main sources, so to speak, and then there, is there something where you just try to give the, the sheet of the Rishayim first and foremost, and then you'll mention sheet of various Achreinim? Are there more important, so to speak, meaning ones that you overall thinkers, some Rishayim and some Achreinim? Like, how does that go in here? And I know, and I know. I just want to. Last thing is, I know you mentioned there are some academic sources in here as well. So let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So 
as I said, first of all, it's not so systematic, but I do spend a lot of time on Rishonim, probably more time on Rishonim than Achronim, and more time on the most important Rishonim, like the Rambam, the Ramban, the Kuzari, and the like. At the same time, in terms of Achronim, I, I, I present them as well. I, I present the topics, I, I, the, the book is structured, as, as I mentioned before, topically. Sometimes when people learn Machshava, especially in a more academic setting, so you might learn it by the thinker. So you'll have a class on Maimonides. The way I set it up is there's a sugya, whatever the sugya is, let's say this sugya is Emuna. So let's look at what does the Rambam say about Emuna? What does the Kuzari say about Emuna? What does the Ramban say about Emuna? In terms of Achronim, I think it is really important to talk about Achronim. To, 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 Torah didn't stop with the end of the Tkufa, the Rishonim, and there's tremendous ingenuity and creativity and we include them. There's a fair amount of Nefshachayim, a fair amount of Rav Tzadok, a lot of Rav Kook, and the Rav going to more contemporary, uh, in, in a more contemporary direction. And as I said, the, the sources that I, I pick, I try to pick what's most important. And also, again, there's no question that a lot, large part of it is what I find particularly interesting and what, what speaks to me. In terms of the academic sources, so here it's unequal. When there is an academic discussion on the topic that I know about and that's relevant, I try to cite it, usually in the footnotes, because the text is about the actual sources. The footnotes have more analysis, so I do try to quote them when, when I'm aware of them. And, but it's divided, it's divided topically. You mentioned before why uh, that, that volume two was published before volume one, which is a very funny story. So what I tell people is because I like Star Wars. Uh, but uh, the real answer is that I already wrote most of it before any of them were published. Um, so most of volume three is already written. I found one of the very frustrating things that I found about publishing books is that the last 10% takes at least 50% of the time, if not more. And so it takes time. So when it came to publishing the first one, I had just planned to do it as a bunch of Sugyos topics without any particular order. And Rabbi Reese, who was at the time the Dean of Reitz, suggested that we come up with some type of structure. And specifically, he noticed how you can put all the topics that I plan to discuss into one of the three Ikarim of the Sefer Ikarim. The Sefer Ikarim takes the Yudgim Ikarim, the Rambam, and more or less divides them into three avos, three primary categories. And he said, oh, well, you know, we could structure the book that way. So I said, fine, so we'll do that. I didn't have to really change anything other than the numbering of the, of the, of the chapters. And so then the one that was closest to completion and the one with the most interesting topics was volume two. Um, 
And in fact, uh, I do think that uh, volume two, which is the one on the free will afterlife and the messianic era is, is more interesting than volume one, which is the one that was just published. Now, maybe I shouldn't say this, it's not good for sales, but, um, but that's what I, uh, that's that, that people told me at the very least that these topics are more interesting. And therefore I figured, let me start with the topics that are most interesting. And we started with volume two, but it's a little funny. They sort of tried to hide it a little bit. So if you notice on the spine, they, they put on volume two, like two little dots over here. So you know it's volume two, but if you didn't know better, you'd look at the front and it doesn't look like this is volume two. It just looks like it's a book. And then when volume one came out, so that it was a volume one, I guess you could figure it out from the chapters also, but that, that's, how, that's how that happened. So when I, when I posted this on Twitter, the new one, I posted, I wrote volume two because I didn't look at it. I wrote volume two. I owned the first, the, the volume two, the real one. And I bought the new volume one, but that's what I wrote. And I got comments, hey, it's volume one, volume two was out already. I'm like, okay, I was just telling you it's the other volume, but yeah. So something else I, I, I think it's related to what we just, what we were just discussing is, so how, not how these topics organized, but basically how did you pick the topics? Is it just topics that interested you or is it based on topics that are discussed in Rambam or Ramban or somewhere else? How were those topics selected? Combination. Now, number one is that I think I tried to pick the most important topics. Like I mentioned before, in a certain sense, they relate to the Ikari Amuna, though somewhat indirectly. Um, Number two is, like you said, they, they interest me. And, and number three, which is related to this, and, and this is an important point, which is I, I try to address the questions that I think are, are the most important questions that are out there and that people that I think about, that I wonder about. And I imagine that other people wonder as well. And I try to address these questions. I'll tell you something interesting actually about that. There were two questions, two emails that I got recently that raised a question, two questions, I think, I think for me caused me to, to pause and think about what I'm trying to do here. So the first question is, which a lot of people asked was why do they have to be so long? They're so long. I'm sure there are lots of people that would be very interested in reading about these things, but they're not interested in something that is this long. By the way, one of my goals after I finish volume three is to publish a one volume work without all the footnotes and appendices and the like, really with the target audience of someone in high school, a sophisticated high schooler and addressing these issues, hopefully in a sophisticated way, but one that's accessible to someone in high school and, and, and not so long. But Lamaisa, the question is, the question is why do they have to be so long? So I certainly am the first to acknowledge that there's beauty and brevity. There's an advantage in brevity because a lot of people aren't interested in reading something that's so long but they would be willing to read something that was a lot shorter. But I think, 
I hope what the answer is, is a very interesting uh, discussion in the Rambam in Mornavuchim, Chelek Aleph, Perak Lamedala. The Rambam is discussing something that he often mentions, which is why is it that so few people arrive at the correct conclusion in things, and especially in the field of machshava. And his answer basically is that it takes a lot of time and a lot of patience, and most people lack that. People want to reach the goal. They have these pressing questions, but they want to reach them quickly. And he writes, he said, go ahead and wake up somebody in the middle of the night and tell them, do you want to know what the heavens are, what the soul is, do we have free will, the afterlife, all these things, these great questions, the problem of evil, the nature of providence, do you want to know the answer to these questions? And they'll say, yes, yes, I do want to know. And then tell them, all right, well, why don't you take a, a month off and work on it? They say, no, no, I'm not interested in that. That's it, right? They're not interested in, in all the preparatory learning. He's talking about metaphysics over there. They're not interested in the hard work. People think that nowadays everybody needs short answers. They need sound bites. And that's a modern problem. It's all the fault of the internet and smartphones and our ever-decreasing attention spans. The Rambam is saying it's not a new problem. It was the same thing in his day. Maybe it's worse nowadays, I don't know. But fundamentally, the Rambam is saying this exact point. It says people, people want the answers to questions. They're very excited about answers. They have all these questions. And then when you try to tell them the answer, but you say, well, to get to the answer, we need to this background and this, and they're, no, they're, they're not interested anymore. And the Rambam writes over there, there's only a few people, he says, Hasridim asher Hashem korei, the, the remnant that, that Hashem calls, they are interested in the preparation necessary for Shlemos. And they'll get it, because if you really, really work hard, you'll get it. So that's why the books are so long, I think. And I hope, you know, when it comes to the Marnavuchim, I could tell you it's worth the investment, even if it's a very frustrating experience at times. I don't know if that's true with my books. Uh, they're, not, they're not, I can't compare them. But, but certainly, I, I would say in the realm of Machshava, it is worthwhile to invest in it. And if you do, if you put in the work, you'll come out with something that you appreciate. The second question that people ask, asked me recently is, is, is an even more profound question. This, this really relates to what you were asking in terms of what I'm trying to do here. So the second question is, do I really answer the questions? I said before that, the, that one of the goals of the book and why I choose the topics that I choose is because I wanna try to address the most pressing questions that people have which causes one to wonder, do I actually answer these questions? Do I answer the questions in a satisfactory way? So the answer is, I don't know. I don't know if I answer the questions. I, I try my best, but I think, I think there's something fundamental. I, I saw in, in um, Rabbi Liel Weintraub, he quotes the Leshem, who quotes Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who writes that from the year 5600, it's based on the Zohar, 
the sixth century or the sixth millennium, around 1840, the gates of wisdom are going to become available to the public. So what was so significant? What happened in 1840? My good friend David Vashevkin has a website all about 1840. Great website. So but what, what happened in 1840? Why, why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu decide to change things then? And the answer, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter explains, and uh, you see the same thing, actually, I saw the Lubavitcher Rebbe says the same thing as well. It was to combat heresy, that at that point in time, heresy was, heresy always existed, but it, it was growing more dominant, more powerful. Nowadays, certainly, in a sense, it's the most, in the broader world, it's, it's taken for granted. It's the assumption there, there, the dominance of heresy as opposed to a world where people were religious. So in the last, I guess, 180 years or so, that, that's become dominant. And so these, the, the expansion of these topics was to combat heresy. So my rabbi, Ravaran asked an obvious question. He said, I don't understand. Does these things really answer the questions, right? Do they answer the questions? The, the type of Torah that opened up since 1840, whether it's Machshava or the like, do they address the answers to these heretical questions, the big questions? Do they give answers? Somebody learns a Kabbalah. Are they going to know the answers to the, 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 the questions of the heretics? So he pointed out that you can address a question in, in two different ways. The way the Rambam, for example, addresses heresy is by tackling the question directly. There's a particular question. The purpose of Marnevuch and the Rambam writes is that there were people in his time and they studied philosophy, physics, and metaphysics, and they had all these questions. They felt that it was incompatible to Torah. And the Rambam addresses the questions directly. Person wants to know, should I believe in God? The Rambam has four proofs for the existence of God. They're answers. And he addresses the questions sometimes by saying, well, what you think is what the Torah says is not actually what the Torah says. The Torah's viewpoint is not antithetical to that of the philosophers. You're misunderstanding Torah. And sometimes he addresses the questions by rejecting the view of philosophers. He tells you, for example, why he rejects Aristotle's view on the eternity of matter and why he thinks that the Torah's perspective on Bria Yesh Me'ayin on creation is correct. The Rambam addresses the questions. And that's one way to deal with questions, with heresy. Somebody has a question, you give an answer. The other way is not necessarily to answer the questions. For example, Ravarn mentioned Rav Moshe Shapiro, how, how Rav Moshe Shapiro brought so many people closer to Torah. And it, people with real questions, but it wasn't because he answered the questions. When he would give a shear in Machshava, he wouldn't say, okay, this is, this is the Kasha, and now I'm going to tell you the Tarots. It wasn't like that at all. So how did he bring the people closer to Torah? Because when he 
presented the ideas of Torah, they were so inspiring. But when I say inspiring, I don't mean inspiring like a, like inspiring the way people usually think of the term, like a kumbaya moment, a good kumzitz. When you learn a maral, you, you, you learn a gemara, and a gadata, a piece of a gadata, and the gadata looks so, if we're honest, sometimes silly, superficial, not particularly deep or profound. And then you learn a maharal, and the maharal opens up your eyes, and you see the profundity here. You see how each of the details in the story refers to a concept. And you say, wow, when Rav Moshe Shapiro would give a shear, you would see the depth, the profundity of Torah, the relevance of Torah. And even if your questions weren't always answered, you were left with a much stronger belief in the system. And that's another way to address heresy. You can't always answer every question, but it helps you, A, live with the questions because you're grounded in emuna, and B, it strengthens that emuna because you see the truth of the system overall, even if you don't happen to know the answer to a particular question. So anyway, in this book, in these books, what I try to do is both of them. I try to a, answer the questions as best I can, but also I hope, again, I don't know if I'm successful, but I hope that in presenting the Torah's perspective on the topics, so the reader will see how broad, how wise, how profound the Torah is. And even if you don't actually know the answer to your question, but it will leave you with a much deeper and greater appreciation of the Torah and hopefully a deeper emunah and a closer connection to our Kaddish Baruch Hu. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think a lot of listeners will agree. I think that's not a soundbite answer. That's a nice lengthy answer. But I also should mention, I think volume one is around 760 plus pages and volume two is around 630 plus pages. So just to give you an idea of how big these books are, they're massive, okay? So, but but like you said, it can't be done short. You know, it's totally different. But like these podcasts recently, I know people wonder, I'm going very long. I'm sure this one's gonna be another long one. And, and I had some people like, no, split them up, be shorter. But I realized that, you know, if you wanna get something in depth and done properly, sometimes it just has to be done long. Now podcasts, you can listen to one and a half or two times speed. So it's a little different than reading the book and it's some, some, these are lighter, but just putting it, just, just uh, saying that. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, before we get to the topics, which we'll get to in, a, not, I was gonna say a minute, but that's a figure of speech, a little bit more than a minute. But before we discuss that, how do you take each topic? And if, and if you wanna pick a topic, an example, you can, or just overall, how does each chapter work? Let's say you take a specific topic, topic A, and what do you do? How do you work through? I mean, give the listeners a feel of what the book is. How does that chapter A on certain, topic A, how does it go from start to finish? Sure. So it depends a little bit on the topic. The topics in volume two and three are much more defined. So it's much easier to do that. Let's say the topic of Olam Haba, the afterlife. So for there, I have a chapter on 
the Rambam's view of the afterlife, the Ramban's view of the afterlife, talking about a topic of hashgacha. So I have a general topic chapter, this is volume three, on, on hashgacha, and a chapter on the Rambam's Mahalech Hanashkacha, and the Rambam's Mahalech Hanashkacha, and the Baal Shem Tov's Mahalech Hanashkacha. And it's relatively straightforward with those types of topics. Um, the, the topics addressed in chapter one are, I had a much harder time structuring it. And that's because they are much less defined, I, sh I suppose. So for example, the, 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 the book is divided up into units. So unit one, which is in volume one is about introducing machshava. So chapter one is pretty straightforward. Talk about why we learn machshava. Is there a purpose in learning machshava? Chapter two is introducing Marnavuchim. Marnavuchim is a very complex work. And we talk a lot about what the Rambam was trying to do in Marnavuchim and did he do it? And, and Marnavuchim is, by the way, a particularly interesting work to, to introduce because there are so many perspectives on this work of the Rambam. There are those who think that the Rambam, Rambam's view it himself, he was a closet Aristotelian and he didn't even believe half the things he said in Marnavuchim. And there are other people who say that the Rambam was a closet Makubal. And despite what he tells you about Kabbalah, everything there is actually a, 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 a secret. And so we talk about different approaches to the Rambam, talk about how Gedolim learned the Rambam, the, the approach of the Rav, of, of Soloveitchik or of Cook on the Rambam, things like that. When the Rambam talks about Mysiveratius and he seems to be talking about science or physics, what does that mean? And how could that be Mysiveratius? So that's, that's chapter two. Chapter three is about philosophy and the interpretation of Torah and specifically under what circumstances can one read the Torah non-literally? Are philosophical reasons relevant in terms of the interpretation of scripture? And what about science? So these are all hakadama questions. Unit two is all about agadita, and also in a certain sense, hakdama. So why study agadita? What about cases in Agadita that where Chazal seemed to have made scientific errors. It's relevant in Halacha as well, though the focus on, here is on Agadah. How did the Rambam think we should learn Agadita? What is the difference between Pshat and Rosh? Should we learn Pshat? Are there red lines? Are you allowed to argue with Chazal when interpreting Chumash? Unit three, we talk about Imuna. And, and here too, again, besides just talking about Imuna, we talk about what does it mean to be a Maimon? Should we seek proof? Shouldn't we seek proof? Again, we talk about science. Is there a difference between the Tkufa of the Rishonim, where many of the Rishonim felt that you can definitively prove the existence of God versus nowadays, where there are those who argue that you can't? And then we talk about the proof, the approach to Muna of Rabbi Udalevi. So we compare that with the Rambam and the role of philosophy. 
so so on and so forth. In other words, again, the the volumes two and three are much more straightforward in terms of their division. Each unit is a sugya, and each chapter in the unit is a mahalech of either a particular thinker or a particular question. Let's say in volume two, on the unit of free will. So we have one chapter on resolutions to the question of free will and divine foreknowledge, Yadi and Bechira. Is it a stira? Isn't it a stira? Is there a yishuv? Do we have Yadi? Do we have Bechira? Do we have both? And we talk about different approaches, Rambam's approach, Rasag's approach, the approach of the Mikubalim, the approach of the Arizal. The, um, so, so that's how the, the book is more or less divided. Um, what one of the critiques that I got from a couple of people who reviewed the, the first volume to come out, they all said it needs an index. So it does. Um, I, my plan is to do an index after we finish all three volumes that's comprehensive. I know that in the meantime, that might be frustrating because you'd like to look things up. Um, I, my, my goal was that I should put my effort into getting the volumes out and then worry about the index afterwards. I'm not like someone who could just uh, hire my graduate students to, you know, okay, you guys write the index and, and put it out. Um, but, um, but I do hope to, to put out an index eventually. But, but what I do try to do, uh, which isn't as, as good necessarily as an index, but hopefully is helpful, is at the beginning of each volume, there is a table of contents that is clear. You know, the table of contents is like six pages long. And that way, if you're looking for a particular topic, um, you, can, you can look in the table of contents and hopefully find it. And certainly a, a major goal in, in the series, I, I don't know if I accomplish it or not, is to be clear and organized. And a lot of what I think I do when I give Shurim or I write the book is, is really just organization. In other words, the Ramban, let's say, for example, but even the Ramban, the Ramban wrote a book of philosophy, if you even call it a book of philosophy, there's a chapter on that, volume one, but, but everything is all over the place. Where are you gonna find things? And, and there's actually a very secret hidden structure to the work, but it's not very practical. The Rambam was a master organizer, as you see from Mishnah Torah, but finding things in Ramavuchim is oftentimes very frustrating. The Ramban, even more so, because he never, you know, where does he talk about this topic? So if you're looking at his Parashala Torah, it could be anywhere. And, and therefore, one of the major goals is to organize. And I hope, I hope that, uh, that, that, that I did that. And even though there's not an index yet, uh, hopefully you could find what you're looking for. Yeah, it definitely is a, a drawback. I know the Ramban, I think there's that famous Kundras thinker by Freed, I think in Dallas, right? He has a thing, he takes the Yisraelitzik Rambans and he gives you, he has like a mafteh. It's a Kundras basically mm -hmm. of telling you where to look. So this is, a, you know, because it's like the problem, like you said, it's Ramban Al-Tayra, is the safer of Amuna um, Ashkafa, but it's Al-Tayra. Mm-hmm. Now, what about volume three? What, what is volume three going to be about? So volume three, Baruch Hashem, it is actually mostly written, uh, though I think it'll be a year or two 
until it's actually published. The, the first part of volume three is on interpreting the Torah and interpreting what's right. So chapter 27 is all about how do we know what to do? How do we know what God wants? Is it through reason or through revelation? What's the role of Svara? And that's a really important question. What about when my intuition contradicts the Torah? On the one hand, sometimes the Torah seems to be telling us we have to be mevatel ardas and something that we think might be right is wrong and we can't do it. Other times the Torah, both in halacha, where Svara clearly plays a very important role, and even in machshava, in determining what's right. So that's what we talk about in, 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 in chapter 27. Chapter 28 is, I think, actually one of the, the chapters that I really enjoyed working on. It's about the development of Torah Shabbat Peh. The nature, how did Machlokas arise? Everybody knows the debate between uh, the Rambam and the Gaonim. The Gaonim deny, well, the, 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 the Gaonim say it was rooted in forgetting the Torah. The Rambam says that Halach Lomosh Mishinei was never forgotten. But, but there's a lot that needs to be analyzed. How did debate arise? Why wasn't Machlokas resolved? Why isn't Machlokas resolved? And even the nature of determining halacha and the like. So that's chapter 28. Chapter 29 is the first chapter, that, unit nine, I guess we could call it, is the Chiras Yisrael, is Hashem's choosing the Jewish people. So chapter 29 is why were we chosen? Was it for a reason or something that we did? Could Hashem reject us? Is it guaranteed? Or is it determined by our behavior? as Judaism racist. Chapter 30, we talk about the responsibility that we have to humanity. This is an important question. Judaism and many sources are very, some folk sources are very particularistic and some are quite universalistic. Do we only care about ourselves? Does HaKadosh Baruch Hu only care about us? Or is Hashem interested in the whole world? We talk about the suffering servant and the like, tikkun olam, what does that mean? So that's chapter 30. Chapter 31 is the Mahalich of Rebuda Levi on chosenness. We go through the Kuzari. Chapter 32 is the Rambam on chosenness. Chapter 33 is the Maharal and Rav Cook and later thinkers. And then we have unit 10, which is Tamiya Mitzvos. We talk about mitzvos in particular, mitzvos in reasons for a particular mitzvot, but also more broadly, what's the reason for mitzvot in general? Are mitzvot for us or mitzvot for God? Do we give God, you know, we often say things like, lasos nachas ruach, where we're doing mitzvot to give nachas to Hashem, nachas ruach liyotzra, it's not just a song, it's a gemara. Well, what does that mean? God lacks something? Is that possible? The Pasuk and Eo says, that if you did, Sidkos, you haven't helped him. You do Averos, you haven't harmed him. So what is the purpose? Is the purpose for us or for Hashem? Differences between the philosophical perspective and the Kabbalistic perspective, and what is the Kabbalistic perspective? So that's what we talk about in, in those chapters on Tami HaMitzvos. Then the next unit is on providence. So we already mentioned that 
the concept of providence, the meaning of bitachon. Should we do maximal ishtadlus? What does ishtadlus mean in terms of versus bitachon? And then we work on the opinions of the Rishonim, the Rambam, the Ramban, the Baal Shem Tov later on, uh, which, which are really very, very fascinating and I think oftentimes misunderstood. So that's more or less what we do in uh, volume three. I have, uh, don't tell the publisher, but I think it might be longer than uh, volume one and two, but uh, we'll wait and see, don't know yet. I try not to look at the page numbers on the bottom of the page. I wonder I wonder at a certain point if the index might have to be in a separate volume because I, I don't know. Thinking, I was thinking I, 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 we should just put the index online and, um, and, and make it available for anybody. The truth is, in, in a sense, I, I, I wish the Sfarim were online, and I hope one day to be able to do it. I think there is a lot of value to being able to look things up and read it in a book and the like. Um, but I also think that, I, I could tell you, for example, I used the VBM website a lot. It helped me a lot in, in preparing the Shiurim. They have so many excellent shiurim on, um, on the Rambam and the Kuzari and contemporary thinkers of Lichtenstein and Ravamital. And one reason why I use them so much, to be honest, is because they were free and on the web, the VBM website. It's the virtual Beit Midrash of Gush. I think uh, I could tell you the, uh, the website. So it's... etzion.org.il. And, and they're really some excellent print shiurim. And I, I use them a lot. One thing is, like I said, because they're good. But, but to be honest, the main reason is because they're easily searchable and accessible and online. And books are less so. So maybe one day I have to figure out a way how to put this online because I do think that by publishing old fashioned books, it is, um, you're limiting your audience. That's not, uh, that's like last century. True, but I think books are still very important. I mean, there's been numbers done on them. I can, you know, books. I are... do also. I mean, I, I did write them this way. Right, especially especially for from people also with Shabbos and Yom Tif and these are real forums. But, but, but exactly. So, I think, uh, you know, for the listeners, I will say we did have prepared, we were going to go into various topics of the book, but I think we gave a basic brief overview. And to do that at this point, we'll be here for a long time. We might be as long as the books in audio form. So I don't think we want to do that. So for that, I think we'll leave it and people can find, you know, your shirim on these topics on Torah and other, other places they can listen um, or and read the book, of course. But I do want to just wrap up with something I think is important. I think you touched on in the book, I think, right? And it's important to discuss is, you know, someone's going to say, why should I do this? Why should I learn this? Why Why do I need to know this? I have a moon. I don't need to read these things. I mean, should I have to, whatever you want to call this, Hashkafa, Amuna, and then Kabbalah, philosophy, Hasidus, I mean, Machshava, whatever words. I mean, someone's going to say, what do I stand to gain from it? I mean, why should I, I learn this? Sure. Well, there's a chapter on the book on that. But uh, I guess if, you're, if, you, if you haven't gotten the book yet, it, it's very interesting. Professor... Rabbi Dr. Isidore Tursky, who is the chair in Harvard and the father of my Rabbi, Rameer Tursky, 
Um, he writes, I think it was in his introduction to the Mishnah Torah, though I'm not sure, that if you look at almost all the gedolim throughout the ages, they almost all studied halacha and what he calls meta-halacha, which means beyond halacha. For some, it was philosophy. For some, it was Kabbalah. For some, though this is much more rare, it was both. But they all believed that it was very, very valuable to spend time knowing these things. The mitzvah of Yediyas Hashem, the Rambam writes, is included in at least five mitzvahs haseh. It's the mitzvah of Anochi, the mitzvah of Avas Hashem, Yiras Hashem. You can't, Achtos Hashem, you, you, you need to, there's a mitzvah to know God. David HaMelech says, Da'as Elokei Avicha. And you have to know God. That's, that's the subtitle of volume one, knowledge of God. You have to know God. Now, how do you know God? There are many ways you could know God through philosophy, meaning to say our own mind. You could know God through Kabbalah, through tradition and mysticism and the like. But there is a mitzvah to, to know God. And while there are debates, whether emuna, which is based off of proof, is better than emuna, which is based off of internal motivation or tradition or the like. But the idea that we have to, there's tremendous value in knowing more than Shasuposkin is one that's nearly universally accepted. And when you look at the Gdolan, whether it's the Rambam or the Ramban or the Gedolim throughout the ages. Again, some more than others, but, but you see that they invested tremendous kolchos into this. And that's because you have to know it. There, there's so much more to Torah. If Torah was a safer halacha, like Rashi says, okay, let's start with hachodesh hazelachem. And even starting there, you know, they're, they're, leave out half the parshios. If, if why did Chazal include spend so much time on Agadita. Why did the Rishonim spend so much time on Sifrei Machshav? It's because it's really important. And it's not enough to just learn Halacha or Gemara or Lamdas that, like I said, almost all, all Jewish thinkers valued this tremendously and, and thought it was a mitzvah and thought it was very valuable. However you do it. And my personal mahalich is, is Elo Vielo. There's a very famous letter, an exchange between the Ramah and the Maharshal. So the Maharshal writes to the Ramah. He, he says, first of all, what are you doing quoting Aristotle? He was such a co-fair, how could you do that? And second of all, he says, he, he critiques his, he says, you don't know Diktuk also. But, um, what, what, what are you doing? And the Ramah writes, first of all, I don't read Aristotle in the original. I, I learn from the Rambam. But beyond that, he says, look, you think that philosophy is dangerous. I think Kabbalah is even more dangerous. But beyond that, what he says, and, and this is what's relevant for us, is he says that, look, 
we have to know about HaKadosh Baruch Hu to the extent that we can. We can't entirely know HaKadosh Baruch Hu by definition. He's infinite, we are finite. But the fact that we can never completely understand HaKadosh Baruch Hu does not absolve us from our obligation to try to the extent possible. And the Ramah writes that there are different Mahalchem in this. There's philosophy, the philosophical perspective, there's the Kabbalah perspective. The Ramah writes, I believe and they're valuable in both. And in fact, in the Ramah's Machshava works, which are rarely studied nowadays, he even merges these two things and connects them. So whatever approach you take, you don't have to read my books, but the idea that we have to learn these things, that we have to try to be Mekayim, the mitzvah of Yediyah Sashem, is something that's accepted nearly universally. And I think it's something that is oftentimes underemphasized in the traditional yeshiva education. Right, I think that's very true. Um, I think the Ramah you're referring to, Taras Ayla mainly, where he says mm -hmm. that. Um, okay, so I think I think we've covered a lot. Um, it's pretty long already, and 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 obviously, like I like I said before, people can go listen to your shirim and uh, also uh, buy the books. I'll link to the books in the show's notes. And uh, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Okay, it was my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, and you should continue to do such wonderful work. And it's, it's a beautiful thing because you, you talk about various farms, farm chatters. So someone who actually writes a book, it's, it's a lot of work. So it makes you feel really good when you know somebody's actually bothering to read it. And so I appreciate your tremendous avoda in uh, spreading the word, not just of these books, but in all this farm that you, you do. And you should be uh, to continue to be Marbitz Torah. Amen. You're welcome. I hope that this helps people find out about the book and to purchase it. Okay. Yasher Koach.